Father, you are so good to us, Lord. We pray that you would bless this time. Thank you for this Lord's Day. We pray that you would bless it for us. We pray that we would see you as our shield, as our glory, and as the lifter of our head as we go through this psalm today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Well, we have been going through the psalms. I fear just joining us. I cover for Pastor Ryan every now and then and kind of give him a little bit of respite, and I decided to go through the psalms. There's 150 of them. They already come with illustrations. They're great. So uh, it has been a real blessing to me to start going through these. Carlos, if you could pass out one of these to everybody, we won't use them very much, these handouts. Normally, I have like a ton of stuff up on the PowerPoint. I'm trying to lessen that, but I still needed some handouts today, so we're going to do that. Let me remind you where we have been. Last time, we were in Psalm 1 and 2, and these twin psalms served as a prologue, if you will, or a program of what the book of Psalms is going to contain as a whole. They spoke of a blessed man, a blessed king, anointed by Yahweh to inherit the nations. He would be a faithful, righteous king that would not be tainted by sin in any way, but rather his delights and his meditation would be on God's law, God's Torah, as we discovered that was, that was really God's instruction for all of our life. This would make him like a strong cedar planted by living waters that would nourish him forever in an Eden-like existence. And in him, there would be identified a congregation of the righteous as well that would find their refuge in him, thus find their blessedness in him. It was not so, not so for the wicked, though. They rather are meditating on vain things. They are seeking ways to overthrow Yahweh and his anointed king. They ponder how they could be released from his law and scheme against his sovereign rule. If they continue down this path, they will only find destruction awaiting them at the hands of the anointed king breaking them with his sovereign scepter, as we saw in Psalm 2. But even in the midst of their rebellion, the very one at whom they are rebelling against, God offers them mercy, telling them, turn away, kiss the son, lest, lest he be angry with you. So even in his wrath, he offers them mercy. It's truly amazing to see that. Ultimately, he encourages them that, to do this before it's too late so that they can join the congregation of the righteous and find their blessedness by having this Davidic king as their refuge. As chapter 2 ended, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. It was a majestic entrance to this, um, to the Psalms as a whole that we saw. And it um, really, really gave us a taste of, of what the whole Psalms are going to be about. A lot of the motifs that we read in Psalm 1 and 2 are all throughout the Psalms, as we will see today as we venture into Psalm chapter 3. As we have said in previous sessions on the Psalms, when looking at our roadmap, we saw that by and large, the book of Psalms, um, it's talking about, so there's five books in the Psalms. Books one is by and large talking about the Davidic kingship in Zion. Books two and three depict their fallen brokenness, while books four and five showcase the ideal Davidic kingship and the ideal Zion. This is kind of the flow of the Psalms. So I was encouraging you all we don't want to just look at these psalms as individualistic psalms like we usually would see how they work in a flow, how the book as a whole is telling a meta-narrative. The rest of book one, which we have now before us, Psalms 3, if you look at your chart there, actually, do you have one more of those, or are they all gone? They're all gone. It's, it's all right. No, I don't need it. I'm fine. Um, you see in that very first top chart, Psalms 3 through 41, and there's a little key there about, you know, you have psalms of lament. You see some chiastic structures. We talked about that in the last previous sessions and whatnot. What we come to here is the first of five Davidic collections. So it's within the five books of Psalms, there are five Davidic collections. Those are Psalms written by David. And they all happen to be grouped together, and there's one in each of the books of Psalms, the five books of Psalms. You have Psalms 3 through 41, which is kind of that top outline, a lot of detail there. 51 through 70, which if you look at your second chart, that kind of shows how this, this spans and goes through the life of David. Again, we went through that a little bit. By second chart, I mean the one in the middle. Uh, we talked about this a little bit in the intro, so if you missed those, I'll just encourage you to go back and, and listen to those. Uh, we'll have another one, 101 through 103, 108 through 110, 138 to 145. So five groups of Davidic collections, one in each of the five books of the Psalms. As you can see, David is a rather central part of the book of Psalms, so much so 
In the New Testament, sometimes it's just referred to as the Psalms of David, even if they're written by someone else. We also saw how David being a type of Christ, the New Testament authors would often refer to the Psalms and say, this is the voice of Christ speaking. So the typology is very clear there. But why so much David, you might still ask. And why are so many of them written in the first person as well? At this point, O. Palmer Robertson, in his book, The Flow of the Psalms, asked the same question and explains, and I thought I'd just read that portion. He asked, why did this single person, David, have such a massive role to play in the production of the Psalter? Why are so many of his psalms written in the first person? It would be too simplistic an explanation to say that by this form, the Psalter intended to assist each individual across the ages in articulating personal prayers before God. Instead, David's first person address to God in psalms should be understood in terms of the climactic covenant of the Old Testament redemptive history that God made with David. This climactic covenant of the kingdom was made specifically with David as the messianic king. Now, just as a kind of parenthetical statement in here, what does he mean when he's talking about the climactic covenant? This means that it's the apex. It's the final covenant of the Old Testament. If you recall, you have the Abrahamic covenant, which... You know, God had his people, but they were formerly a nation in the Abrahamic covenant. Plus, the Abrahamic covenant is promising to bless all the nations in the future. Building off of that, you have the Mosaic covenant, which has laws governing the people, laws governing the priest. It even has laws governing the king, even though there was no king at the time. And then the final covenant in the Old Testament is the Davidic covenant, which establishes God's dynasty and dwelling place ultimately forever is what the plan is. So it's really, when we talk about the Davidic covenant, which is featured a lot in the Psalms, as we already saw, it was reiterated in Psalm 2, today you are my son, today I have a God in you, that's language from the Davidic covenant. We're going to find that um, it's really the consummation of the Mosaic covenant. What is the nation supposed to do when they are at rest, when there's no more enemies all around them? Well, that's when they establish this Davidic covenant in its fullness. It's the consummation, if you will, of the old covenant as a whole. So, going back to um, O'Palmer Robertson's quote, he, co- he continues on saying, As a single individual, David received God's promises in the covenant regarding a perpetual dynasty. This distinctive role of David as God's anointed Messiah explains the centrality of his person in the Psalms. These I Psalms, or these Psalms that are in the first person, describe the various situations in life faced by the singular servant of the Lord. Indeed, each of these psalms contain a message for the individual believer. So it's not like, I remember going, I was telling my wife, I've been to a church where, you know, I remember the guy was saying something like, you know, you're not David. You know, David slew the giant. You can't apply it to yourself. That's just talking about David. Well, in one sense, I understand what he's saying, but if David is a type of Christ and we are in Christ, then there is something there for the believer. This is what we're going to find all throughout the psalms. This is one reason like we've talked about before, believers all throughout the ages have clung and loved and prayed through and sung the book of Psalms. But to understand these I Psalms, uh, Robertson continues, in their fullest significance for the individual, they must first be appreciated for their role in speaking for God's anointed servant, the messianic king. Then a principle regularly at work in the Psalter will become clear in its significance. As it fares with the messianic king, so it fares with each member of the messianic kingdom. Or a shorter way to say that is, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. I like how Sam Ranahan put it in his book, The Mystery of Christ and His Covenant and His Kingdom. He writes, quote, The Davidic king is appointed as the federal head of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant has a mediator, Moses, but not a federal head. As the book of Judges states so prominently, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and there is no king in Israel in those days. The Davidic covenant established the heirs of David as the representatives or federal heads of the kingdom. They are not just to lead people as an example of righteousness and law-keeping. They are to represent the people in their law-keeping. This means that if the king is righteous, the land is blessed, the people are blessed. If the king is wicked, Contrastly, the people are cursed. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And this is the testimony we see throughout um, the books of the Chronicles and the Kings. Righteous kings bring forth blessing. Wicked kings bring forth curses. 
With that, let's begin looking at Psalm 3. Psalm 3, if you turn your Bibles there, whatever copy you have of it, digital or physical. You see, this is going to be one of the first, or this is the first psalm that we have that has a superscription. It has a title in it. These are part of the biblical text, even though modern English translations don't number them with the number one. In the Hebrew text, these are numbered as the number one. This is one reason you'll, if you're comparing the Hebrew with the English, all the verses will be off by one if it has a title, because in the Hebrew text, they will title the, the title, or they will versify it with the number one. So uh, these descriptions are simple enough to understand. They'll give us information like the author, the genre, the occasion of it, uh, kind of various things. If, if it's for this instrument or this instrument, who's it supposed to be sung by, so forth and so on. In this case, Psalms 3 superscription begins with a psalm by David, simple enough to understand. David is the author of this song here. And it also gives the occasion, when he fled from Absalom, his son. This is the backdrop of Psalm 3, Absalom's rebellion. If you aren't, don't recall it, let's briefly, um, let me briefly recall it for you. Uh, this takes place in 2 Samuel 11, much of the Davidic Psalms parallel David's life from Samuel, the book of First and Second Samuel. In 2 Samuel 11, David's infamous sin with Bathsheba is committed. In the very next chapter, Nathan the prophet comes and proclaims the consequences of this. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. By chapter 15, David's own son, Absalom, would begin to deceive and steal the hearts of the Israel by claiming there was no king that was going to care for their... You know, when people would come to Israel and seek the advice of the king or his council, he would be there at the gates, you know, wooing them. He, he apparently, the, the Bible text talks about how he was a very good-looking man, um, and he seemed very political. He's like kissing them, kissing the babies. It's kind of that picture and saying, oh, that I were king, and then I would help you. But there is no real king in Israel right now, even though David was the true king. Um, he did this for about four years, really winning, really stealing, I should say, the hearts of the Israelites. And it's interesting to see how he's really betrayed with a kiss, much like Judas betrayed another Messiah um, that we read about in the New Testament with a kiss as well. Anyways, after four years, Absalom is stealing their devo devotion. And after conspiring this way, he eventually declares that when you hear the trumpets blast, you will know that I am king. And so the trumpets blast, He's declared king. David gets wind of this, and that very night, he flees for his life. Um, he flees out of the city because he's worried that Absalom's going to come and attack the city. Um, and because David is a good king, he cares about his kingdom citizens. He always has their well-being in mind. Uh, let's turn to 2 Samuel 17. We'll be in there for a little bit. 2 Samuel 17 will get us more into some of the backdrop and drama here. If you go back one verse from 2 Samuel 17, we read, Now it was in those days the council, uh, in those days the council that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So David has this counselor, Ahithophel, and both David and Absalom, as the rest of the verse say, esteemed him as highly as the word of God. Like whatever he said, that was going to go. Um, this is pretty devastating because back in chapter 15, I'm sorry, back in chapter 16, 20, nope, I was right. Back in chapter 15, oops, I got my pages mixed up, excuse me. Yes, back in chapter 15, verse 31, when David gets news of this conspiracy, it was told David, Ahithophel is among the, conspir the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So instantly, David hears this, and he takes action. He prays. That's not the only action he takes. He also calls a man, Hushai, to... Well, this man, Hushai, wanted to follow David into the wilderness and help him. David said, you'll help me more if you go over there and try to thwart Absalom's plans, try to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel, which seemed impossible because they... they they considered his counsel as it was the word of God. So going back to chapter 17 there, 2 Samuel 17, here is what happens. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, 
Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. This was the very day that Absalom was proclaimed king. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and will bring all the people back to you as a bridge comes home, as a bride comes home to her husband. Excuse me. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and the elders of Israel. If you recall back in Psalm 2, what is happening here is literally what Psalm 2 is talking about. The wicked are counseling together how to overthrow the anointed one. The wicked are plotting, they're meditating a vain thing. The kings and rulers taking counsel against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's literally happening right here against King David in this case. The counsel, the counsel of Ahithophel seemed wise. According to worldly wisdom, and that makes sense. We're just going to get rid of this one guy. Let's do it now. David's weary, weak. He's probably got to rest somewhere eventually tonight. But let's take him down. What we read in... Uh, the rest of this, and I think for time's sake, I'm going to just kind of summarize it. Hushite come, Hushai comes, rather, and Absalom asks him in verse 5, call Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. Remember, this is the man that David sent. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. And he goes on and on to say, David has been enraged. He's going to be like, like a mother bear. You've taken the cubs away. He has mighty men. He knows how to fight. As soon as one of your men go down, word is going to spread amongst the camp that those who follow Absalom, they're starting to fall. I want to preserve my life. I don't want to die. Uh, we, should, we should abandon this rebellion here. Jump down to verse 14 here. And Absalom and all the men, this is after he gave his, um, his advice, and actually what winds up being the advice is, you should take some time and gather all of Israel to you. you know, ultimately, what this, this is very shrewd, because this is going to give David a lot of time to escape and to find safety. And ultimately, verse 14, this is what happens. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, and there is a reason why. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. This again is a nearly literal what's happening in Psalm 2. The Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. As one commentary put it, Yahweh ordained, David prayed and acted in sending Hushai, and Yahweh's plan came to pass. The danger David faced that night that he fled Jerusalem Danger augmented by Ahithophel's powerful stratagem sets the scene for Psalm 3 here. And that's what the superscription is all about. A Psalm of David when he fled before Absalom, his son. So with the title explained, uh, we will see that this psalm is broken up into three parts. Let's go back to Psalm 3. Spend the rest of our time there. And you'll notice that this psalm is broken up into three parts each of the seams or each of the endings ending in that word, Selah. Verses 1 and 2 are going to introduce the dilemma. Enemies rise and declare vainly, um, and then you have your Selah there. Verses 3 through 4 recounts David's deliverance, and then it ends in a Selah. And then verses 5 through 8 shows David's response and declaration, calling Yahweh to rise. The enemies have risen in verses 1 and 2. Now David is calling on Yahweh, on his covenant God, to rise. And then it also ends with a Selah. We don't really know for sure what the meaning of Selah means. There are a lot of theories about it. Some people believe it's a pause and meditate, or it's a musical term. Um, whatever it is exactly, usually when it shows up in a psalm, it is a turning point. So we, that's about the only thing I say definitely about it. There's definitely some kind of turning point here. I don't know if this means that there was some like guitar solo going on on some stringed instruments, as some people would propose. Well, they won't say guitar, but... Um, just thinking modernly. Um, not sure, but these definitely break up the verse nicely for us. Even if you look at chapter 4, chapter 4 is really parallel with, with chapter 3 here. Um, it's a very similar situation, and it is broken up in three parts with a Selah in each of its seams as well. 
All right, well, let's look at verses one and two to see David's dilemma even deeper than what um, the history books have given us. Again, remember, remember the Psalms, they, they are, this one's related to history, obviously, but this is, this is kind of like hearing David's personal prayers. This is like opening up his diary and reading it. It's very personal. Psalm 3 reads, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. And if you notice, there is a thricefold many. Many are rising against me. Many are saying, many are my foes. Many are saying of my soul. Many, many, many. There is a thrice declaration. Many are rising up against David. This is a betrayal of his own people. Try to imagine what that would feel like for David. Try to put yourself in his sandals, as it were. Um, they're plotting to overthrow you, conspiring not only for your crown, but for your very life as well. And it's being led by your son. And this is not how you imagined your progeny would be. God has given you a promise that from your loins, from your children, would come a promised Messiah, one who would rule forever. And this is not the way you expected it to be at all. This son is trying to rise up and kill you instead. And think of the despair that would come upon you knowing this came about because of my shin with Bathsheba. This is my fault. A lot of reasons to lower your head in shame. More than that, these wicked that are rising up against him, the way David takes this, we don't read this in the, in the text in Samuel, but the way David is taking this is that they are assaulting his very soul. In verse 2, he's saying, many are saying of my soul, uh, Calvin and other versions of the Bible will, will clarify that, saying, well, this is actually talking, it's, it's piercing David, it's going to his soul. It's as if they're saying these words to him, and it is piercing his soul. There is no salvation for him in God. They don't care that he's the Lord's anointed. They don't care that God has promised salvation for him. In fact, worse than that, they're, they're taking those promises and flipping them on its head. They're assaulting David with it, saying there is no salvation for him in God. It's like an echo chamber, these multitudes surrounding all about him. There is no salvation for you in God. There is no salvation for you in God. There is no salvation for you in God. It's all that David is getting from this rising rebellion against him. And we shouldn't be surprised that the seed of the wicked is using the same strategies as the serpent does from the very beginning. That question, has God really said, questioning God's promises, causing David to perhaps question these promises as well. And then, of course, here it ends with a Selah. This psalm starts off, so even though in Psalm 1 and 2 we have a great triumph of this messianic king, Psalms 3 and 4, we instantly, we come to our first lament, and we instantly see there's going to be some tribulation in the Christian life. This is not a pie in the sky, everything just goes smooth and easy all your life. Um, this, the Psalms don't hide that fact from us in any way, even if that's what you, the only thing you picked up from Psalm 1 and 2. Um, Psalm 3, the rise to power that David's taking, it's filled with tribulation, much like Jesus the Messiah's was in this own life. Before his resurrection from the dead, he had a life of humility. Before his exaltation to the throne of God, he had a life of humility. So amongst all this, what does David do? Well, David cries out to his covenant God. Notice there he uses that covenant name of God. O Lord, O Yahweh, my covenant God, how many are my foes? And these many foes are rising and proclaiming to him, there is no salvation for him and God, Selah. Verses three through four gets us into David's deliverance. And again, this is a, a turning point. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. In verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. And this is what we saw that David did as soon as he heard about this rebellion, as soon as he heard his greatest counselor betrayed him. He prays to God, oh, please confuse him. Don't let this happen. Spare my life. And God answers from his holy hill. Again, there's that connection with Psalm 2. God has installed his king from his holy hill. So even though these lies have arisen and the wicked are saying, there is no salvation for you in God, there's no hope, 
God is in the heaven saying, nope, I have put King David on my holy hill. It's going to happen. You cannot thwart his plans. It's all going to be for naught. Um, despite the schemes of the wicked, their plans, yeah, are for naught, as I said. The greater David Jesus did not just proclaim the truth that there would be tribulation in the world, right? That's one thing he made very clear to us. He explained it, and he, and he very much related as the greater David to this kind of abandonment, this kind of, of um, yeah, it would be easy to lose hope. That's temptation to lose hope, to despair, in, in only seeing by sight what the world is showing you. If you're David and seeing these these potentially 12,000 rise up against you, rebel against you, that could feel very hopeless. But as Jesus says in John 16, 32 through 33, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. And this is right before he's going to ascend to the cross. When you shall be scattered, each of you to his own home, and will leave me alone. Here he's talking to his closest friends, his closest disciples. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. King David did know his great sin. We're going to get into it more when we get to Psalm 51. But he also knew his great Savior, and he knew the blessedness that he had. In the same Davidic collection in chapter 32, he's going to, to sing a praise that goes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He had an unwavering assurance that this was reality for him. So even though enemies would rise and seek to take his crown and his life and his hope in God, these thrice many that rise up against him, David responds, if you notice, in a threefold way. Look at, verses, at verse, just verse 3 again. But you, O Yahweh, are my shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. This awesome assurance that King David has, I am on the wrong page, I think. Yeah, this awesome assurance that King David has shows he is that blessed man of Psalm 1. If it wasn't for his meditating on God's word, being able to know God's word, know the promises for him, he would have easily gone into despair. And I think that brings up a really good point of application for us of we don't know when temptations, trials, whatever is going to hit us in life, you know, how are we preparing for those times? Are we hiding God's word in our heart? Are we meditating like that blessed man in Psalm 1 on his word day and night? I was thinking on the way here, it's like, it's like the Minutemen when they're, you know, we were told about them that they were, they were wielding their weapons at all times. They were always ready to go. They didn't know when an attack would come. We don't know when an attack will come. If we're just relying on, oh, I'll just pull it up on my phone and I'll seek God and search for some app and whatnot, you know, those things can be great benefits to us. But God's design is for us to hide it in our hearts, to really meditate, to, to own it, to take it with us. And um, I know for myself, one thing I want to do in the new year is memorize more scripture and kind of like whole psalms. Since I'm basically going through one or two psalms a month, I want to try to aim to memorize those. So I'm planning to just to print one up, put it on my mirror, brushing my teeth, combing my hair, washing my hands, um, and just go through it and eventually work on memorizing it. But we can maybe talk about some of that a little more when we get to the end. All right. Um, one thing I found amazing here in this first proclamation David gives against the threefold many, his first one, you are a shield about me. That is a promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15. When Abraham, you know, God, has pro God has covenanted with him. He has promised him a son. He has promised him a whole nation would come from him. And at this point, Abraham didn't even have a son. It looked bleak. He's being pursued by enemies as well. And God comes to him in a vision and tells him, fear not, I am your shield. This is the same comfort that David uses to comfort himself during this immense trial. And David, being a military man, knew the benefit of a shield. Protect your life from a death blow, uh, so many benefits of it. But as he says, you are a shield about me. It's really 
a 360-degree protection that he has, safe every which way, even from attacks, as we see in verse 2, brought on against his very soul. If God can protect your very soul, surely he can protect your very life as well. This was some of the assurance that um, I think David would have had from what it kind of seems here. So we will see later that David, a great man of faith, when his enemies are pursuing him again in another instance, in Psalm 35, he'll actually kind of reverse his promise and ask God, God, you take up your shield and defend me and then say to my soul, I am your salvation. So it seems like there's a lot of times David would have questioned this or his enemies would attack him with that assault. There is no salvation for him in God. So he just asked and prayed, God, remind me that, yes, you are my salvation. And just briefly, if you look to Psalm 4, you could see that one of the parallels here with Psalm 3, um, David kind of takes this, these wordings and directs it towards his enemies and asks them, O oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? If you remember from Psalm 2, it's, it's the vain that meditates on vanity and they speak lies. And David recognizes them saying to my soul, there is no salvation. It's not truth. It's not a lie. So what does David do? He reorients what he knows with the truth, the truth of God's word, because he is that blessed man that has meditated on God's law day and night. So back to chapter 3, verse 3, part of David's threefold declaration of what God is to him, as opposed to those thrice many lies of the enemy uh, that would seek to bring him down. First, God is David's shield about him. And secondly, he is his glory. Simply put, that is just, it's the reason for David's praiseworthiness. It's the best part of his reputation, if you will. David does not come out here and say, hey, I'm so good with the sling. I can write some rocking psalms. Um, I have done this great deed. I've done, I've slew, you know, whoever. Um, rather, David says, you, Lord, are my glory. I like how John Dill, how, sorry, John Gill asked, who took David from the sheepfold and made him king over Israel and raised him to all the glory that he enjoyed and in whom he gloried as his covenant God and of whom he made his boast and not his strength, valor, wisdom, riches, and honor. So God, the Father, is the glory of Christ, the glorifier of him by supporting him under his suffering, raising him from the dead and setting him at his own right hand where he is crowned with glory and honor. He is the glory of his people in whom they glory and by whom they are called to eternal glory. And who will give it to them and reveal it to them, even an eternal weight of it, which the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared? Obviously, the answer is God. This is why later the Psalms will say, not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give the glory. So David's threefold assurance continues. God is his shield about him. He is his glory. And lastly, the lifter of his head. No doubt the sin that David bore would have caused him to be downcast and uh, disparaging because a lot of this is his own fault. But with God as his refuge, he found forgiveness. And this would cause his head, so to speak, to be lifted up. Right? There's no more condemnation for those who have God as their refuge. David would know this and believe this, and as the great man of faith he was, rest his soul on God for this purpose. That's usually how we take that phrase in this, in this but I, I think given the context and what follows and what's happening, um, that there's something more here. I don't necessarily think that, that that understanding is untrue, but I think there's a more meaningfulness to the phrase God being the lifter of his head, as David declares here. Uh, David declares it again in Psalm 27 when he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is my refuge, the refuge of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In verse 6 of, of chapter 27 of the Psalms, David says, and again, this is another instance where David is being pursued by his enemies. David proclaims, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. This is language used after one has finished the battle. This is a victor declaring his victory. This is a king saying, I am head, I am rule over you. Um, 
with his enemies, obviously downtrodden and cast down at his feet, in some instances slain before him. The many foes that arose in the end will be cast down, and David is going to be the one rising up in victory. Why? Because it's God who lifts his head. It's God who gives him the victory. We see this again of the messianic king. Psalm 110, one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, speaking of Jesus, when it famously speaks in Psalm 110.4, it reads, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, a very messianic psalm. New Testament makes it clear this is about Jesus. And it follows and says the following, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. And then the final verse there ends, therefore, he will lift up his head. So this is language speaking about God giving the victory to his Messiah, to his, if you will, his warrior kings here. The first one being David and the last ultimate one being Jesus. He will shatter kings, break them with his rod of iron, as we saw in Psalm 2. This is one of the very reasons that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father will lift up the head of his Messiah, his warrior king. In fact, he already has. The greatest enemy he has already taken down, which was death. God lifted up Christ, raised him from the dead, from the grave, and exalted him to his right hand, lifting his head. So this is that thrice hope that King David has. God is his shield, all about him. He is his glory, and he is the lifter of his head. So how does the psalm relate to us? Well, as we said, one of those opening principles when we come to the psalms, as it goes with the king, so it goes with the kingdom. We identify with this blessed king. We have him as our refuge And as it goes with the king, so it goes with his kingdom citizens. He has lifted up your head, believer, in giving you new life in him. You can have assurance by the blood of Christ, by his victory over death, that you can stand before God on judgment day because you have his royal gowns. You have his his victor gown, if you will, his very righteousness. Jesus gives us great assurance of this in Luke 21, 28, preaching, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. This gives us hope to press on and make it all the way to the end. There is no need for shame for the believer, for there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who find refuge in this blessed man. And Jesus' disciples would further encourage the church, saying in 1 John 2, 28, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and be unashamed before him at his coming. Like we talked about last time in Psalm 2, who can stand the day of his coming? Only those roped in his righteousness. The rest will hide in the mountains and pray for them to fall. So that brings us to this last section. Again, that ends with another Selah. So we have another kind of change here in the Psalm. Though there are many, many, many enemies arising David reminds himself of the threefold victory that he has by God's grace, or perhaps this was God's answer to him from God's holy hill. So what is his response? David, you know, he's a great military man. Does he rally an army? Does he plan a coup, a counter coup? Uh, Does he plan to backstab his son, get some sweet revenge, some restitution? Psalm 3, 5, I lay down and slept. David's plan at this point is to lay down and sleep. And amongst all this chaos and these masses, I almost find that humorous. He lays down and sleeps. As Spurgeon pithily put it, quote, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head, end quote. If you recall in 2 Samuel 17, Ahithophel the former trusted counselor of David, who now has betrayed him um, and has come up with a plan to kill him while he was weak and weary and probably resting from his run, Um, it doesn't take place. God heard that David prayed. God obviously ordained this as well. And he took action. 2 Samuel 17, 14, 
the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that Yahweh might bring harm upon Absalom. So though they're trying to twist God's promises to David, the Lord himself takes those plans and turns them upside down in order to do harm to Absalom, the very wicked king who's trying to overthrow God's true Messiah. David knew the promises of God. Obviously, he didn't, he didn't see these things by sight. The situation looked dire, but he followed them by faith. This resulted in sleep. This is a practical outcome of faith, sleep, a fearless sleep. And when you sleep, if you think about it, you are at your most vulnerable. David here, no matter how good he is with a sling or a sword, he's not in the safety of his palace. He doesn't have palace guards watching over him. He is vulnerable and is most vulnerable. Um, he is ultimately dependent on God. And that shows when you get to the very next verse. I'm sorry, the very next section of verse 5. I lay down and slept, and then this is what happened. I woke again. Why? For the Lord, for Yahweh sustained me. Yahweh sustains his Messiah by thwarting their plans. And knowing that God had ordained this, or David, I'm sure, didn't have that part of the text, but he knew the promises of God, and he prayed to God. And so God's sovereignty was a sweet pillow for David to rest on. Though multitudes upon multitudes colluded with Absalom's rebellion against David, and Ahithophel counseled to take 12,000 men to go out against David that very night, Hushai suggested otherwise, hush them, if you will, as God had ordained. And David could then live and see the light of another day. Of another day. And not only that, he could even sleep peacefully throughout those crazy circumstances. Again, if you look at chapter 4, which I think is a really big parallel, this is the ending of chapter 4. David writes, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is another one of the solas, if you will. This is David's sola for how he has peace. He knows he can't trust. I mean, he, he had once put his trust in Ahithophel, one of his greatest counselors. He knew that fell apart. Who else would betray him? Like, all of Jerusalem, all of Israel was against David at this point. He knew his last hope was God alone to make him dwell in safety. And though they had many, David only needed one. And he had that one. He had God and God alone. And that caused him to lay down and sleep in peace. And that was his plan. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people, at least in this case, at least 12,000, who have set themselves against me all around. This was something that, that struck me of, this is, sleep is such a simple gift from God. You know, later on in the Psalms, I think it's 125, he says he gives his beloved sleep. This is something we take for granted, um, that the Lord sustains us even during those times. The Lord holds all things together. If we woke up today, if the sun was shining, if our lungs were working and we drew breath, this was because God sustained us. In him, we have our life and our being. As Colossians 1, 16, 17 will say, for by him, all things were created through him, here it's talking about Jesus, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We only have our existence because of the power of Christ. Um, truly amazing. This is just something I, if I ever have trouble thinking of something to be thankful to God in prayer, just think of the most basic functions you do throughout the day. You cannot do that apart from God. All right, well, let's close out this psalm looking at the last two verses Verse 7, longer than the normal, something a little extra about it. Um, it kind of clues us into that. Most of this, as you've seen, is a lot of Hebrew parallelism. We talked a little bit about that. Um, verse 7 stands out a little more, and this will actually relate to the third graph you have on your sheet. I won't go into too much detail about it for time's sake, but let's, let's read verse 7 first. It reads, Arise, O Lord, Yahweh, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. 
That opening phrase there, arise, O Lord, is going to be one of those light motifs. We're going to see it all throughout the Psalms. Um, it's going to be there. If you, look, if you look at your chart, that third chart there, we're going to find it in Psalm chapter 3, right here, 7, 9, 10, and 17, also Psalm 132. It's only in two other places in the Bible, that exact phraseology. It's in Numbers 10.35, and I have them all written out there for you, and 2 Chronicles 6.41. Both of those times are in reference to the Ark of the Covenant being moved and during times of warfare. Whenever the Ark uh, was set out, Moses said, so this one is more parallel with, with what you see. So the Psalms, if you look at your chart, 3, 7, 9, 10, 17, relate to how it's set up in Numbers 10.35, which reads, Arise, O Lord, and this is Moses speaking, another covenant head, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee from you. We'll get into more detail about this as this motif comes up, but just to give you a reference, this is, this is a, a, a common theme, not a main theme of the Psalms, but it comes up enough times we should take notice of it. But that gives us further confirmation that when David prays or thanks God that and has assurance in God that he is the lifter of his head, it has a military meaning to it. It's talking about his victory. And in case you're unsure if it has any kind of military meaning, the second phrase of verse 7, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Again, another theme we see back in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 spoke of a king that was invited by Yahweh to pray for the inheritance of the nation. Consequently, this would happen by, quote, breaking them with a rod of iron and dashing them like a potter's vessel. This is part of that cosmic war going on, which was started at the beginning. Genesis 3.15, as soon as Satan causes um, the fall, Adam falls, um, God declares enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman from whom salvation would come. Yahweh spoke to the serpent, the serpent saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And as we all know, a strike to the head is going to be a lot more devastating than a strike to the heel. And this seems to be more spelled out here in Psalm 3, striking all my enemies on the cheek. It's more explicit, if you will. You break the teeth of the wicked. This is one reason why you'll hear preachers and theologians say of Christ, you know, he sees the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 there, that he is the seed of the woman that would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And this, of course, he did on the cross. And here again, though many enemies rise, David calls upon just one to rise in his defense, and that is the one Lord. That's the contrast there. Many, many, many enemies rise. David just needs to call upon one, his Lord Yahweh, who is his shield, his glory, the lifter of his head. This is why he doesn't put his faith in man, who says things to him like, there is no salvation for him in God. No, rather, look at his triumphant ending here, verse 8. It's, this is why it's amazing to me that this, I understand why this is categorized as a lament psalm, but when you start digging into it, you're like, David is just like hardcore triumphant in this amongst this reason that I would just be in total despair. He ends saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And there it is. This went from an, an I psalm, a psalm that was in the first person, to the blessing upon God's people. Because, as we read, as it goes with the king, so it goes with the kingdom. I like how Andrew Bonar in his commentary on this verse explains, it is a psalm that may be found suitable and needful in the latter days. As when David wrote it, when waves of sorrow and calamity are dashing over the ship of the church, it may borrow from the psalm the ground of hope which long ago Jonah borrowed from his strange title, Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2.9. Calvin, in his commentary here, puts it the most plainly. From this passage, we learn that the church shall always be delivered from calamities which befall her, because God, who is able to save her, will never withdraw his grace and blessing from her. We can take our pillow and rest our heads on God's sovereignty tonight, even in times when trouble arrives on every side. And every night, that is because he is every day at all times our shield. He is our glory. He is the lifter of our head. We have the victory in him because we have victory in Christ. 
May we never sink into despair, but rather pray and recall, like David, how God has helped him in ages past, and he is his hope for the future to come. Recalling in this final verse that this blessing is upon his people, as it goes with the king, so it goes with the kingdom. Lastly, David, David's trouble foreshadow the sufferings of the greater David, as we've already seen in part. Jesus on the cross endured a much deeper mockery. The Pharisees, Sadducees, and those passing by, wagging their fingers on him, as Matthew 27 would proclaim, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. He saved others. Can he not save himself? He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. It's that same type of mockery that we see in Psalm 3, but to a much greater degree. If he desires for him, for he said, I am the son of God, let God deliver him. And Christ experienced the ultimate abandonment when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The greater David experienced something King David himself never experienced, for Christ ultimately was forsaken, um, but only for a time. And he experienced this so that his people would not have to experience this in any way. Jesus prayed and knew God would keep him and that his soul would not ultimately be abandoned. His prayers were answered and he arose, God giving him the victory, raising his head above his enemies, raising him from the dead. As we read in Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom, his blessing beyond his people. Let's close with prayer. Well, Father God, you who are our shield, our glory, the lifter of our head, we do pray that you would keep your church. We do pray, as Jesus said, that the gates of hell would never prevail against it, Lord. Please keep all schisms and divisions, uh, whether from within or without, um, from us, Lord. Please protect your people, protect your church, protect us, Lord. We thank you for your great sovereignty. May it be a sweet pillow for us to rest on this night and every night until we are with you in your heavenly kingdom in ultimate glory. In Jesus' name we pray.